0: Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you are joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay friends, let's begin. Hello again, my Bible study friends. I am so glad you were here. This episode is a bonus of sorts, as I still had so many things I wanted to share with you as we were wrapping up the book of Job in the last episode. So many valuable things for us to hear, so many threads to pull, so to speak, that I decided we would just make time for them in another episode. I guess that is most certainly one of the benefits of being the podcast host, right? Deciding when and if we move on? (laughs) Okay, so back to what I have in mind when I mention threads to pull. Basically, that means sharing the connections between some of the various topics and themes that have continued to come up in many places over the last few weeks of my studies. Actually, in many areas of my life. They are all related in one way or another to the book of Job. But as I previously mentioned, we simply ran out of time in the last episode to cover them in depth the depth I feel they deserve. Honestly, when things of faith line up and overlap, it is important for us to lean in. So that is what I'm doing in this bonus episode, my OOBT friends. Listen in as I pull the threads I have been seeing in my studies, my reading time, in podcasts I listen to, messages at church, social media posts, and on and on. As a bit more of a note here, please trust me when I say that clear up to the moment I pressed record a bit ago, God has continued pulling these threads for me through various resources, to link together for us, one by one. Actually, there are too many for me to even possibly include in today's episode. That is, unless you want to listen to my voice for hours and hours on end, my friend. (laughs) In light of that fact, I will pull plus do my best to link as many threads as I can and hope to tie them together in a way that makes as much sense to you as it has to me. It truly has been a challenge to narrow down what to include and what not to include. So please know that today's show notes are full of many extras for you to explore as you keep pulling the threads yourself in your own study times. I promise it is worth the effort, and I would so love if you would reach out to me to share how God is tying this all together for you too. So truly amazing that our God of the universe is so tender to sometimes give us glimpses of how things fit together from his viewpoint. I absolutely love that about him. With all that said, I am not sure exactly where to begin with all these threads I have been pulling over the last few weeks, so how about we begin with our near-constant Bible study companion, Lisa Turkhurst. If you recall, we journeyed through a large portion of her book, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, while in the book of Job. I genuinely feel she has studied along with us too, don't you? (laughs) Let's lean into these perspectives Lisa landed on by the end of her book by reading from the final chapter titled, Upside Down. However… Before we begin reading from this chapter, I would like us to consider these thoughts and questions when thinking about what living upside down might mean. Do you ever feel that way about your life? Like maybe your life feels nothing like you thought it would be, or just is not as it should be. Where there should be love, there's hate. Where there should be loyalty, there's betrayal. Where there should be hope, there's despair. Where there should be life, there's death. Life can feel upside down. Yet God... Throughout her book, Lisa is sharing so candidly about her personal journey, and we have seen that God takes the broken things of our lives and puts them back together. He heals wounds and uses our scars to minister to others. He speaks peace and hope and truth into our wayward and desperate hearts, minds, and lives. The first half of the chapter is a conversation, Lisa speaking to us, her readers, as if we were sitting across from her at the kitchen table. Oh, 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 BT-ers, how I wish we could be sitting across from one another in the M&M's wick shed right about now, too. In this conversation, once we get through the niceties and the more lighthearted challenges of life, like a makeup mix-up or being stuck in a shirt, she dives right in by saying, And we'd both agree this isn't how it should be. This life between two gardens is confusing and complicated. Dust is messy. We don't even like to touch dust, especially if it's made up of the shattered pieces of our own hearts. Thankfully, we don't have to. We can hand it over to God, the one who forms our dust into something we want, but never could have made for ourselves. We're not in agreement at this thought. Then I'd share a couple verses that have really helped me, but I would warn you, the first might not feel good at the first glance, but it's better to wrestle with truth than to wallow in turmoil. So I would turn to the book of James, chapter 1. I'd recite verses 2 through 4 from memory, which should reassure you. I've personally wrestled through the turmoil with this truth more than just a time or two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I'd confess I like these verses until I don't. They're easy to pull out when your worst issue is that your drive through coffee joint just got your order wrong today. They frappéed your latte and waylaid the start of your workday. gur. But then you put a little Jesus on it and felt way mature as you considered some joy in there. But what about those other things we walk through? The ones that hurt too long or disappoint too deeply or feel devastatingly permanent? To slap some we-should-be-joyful-about-this verses on top of the hard things feels cruel, like a bad joke about something excruciatingly painful. It's just too soon for that kind of nonsense. That's why I'm glad these verses don't say feel the joy, but instead consider where some glimpses of joy might be, even in the midst of all the hurt. To live is to love. To love is to risk pain. To risk pain is to live. That's what it means to be truly human. As fragile as dust, the breaking of us, the making of us, the building up of our faith. Understanding how to consider it all pure joy rises and falls on whether we truly trust God, in the middle of what our human minds can't see as good at all. It's hard. So I like to think of it in terms of baking. Imagine today we decided to make a cake. Not like I went to the grocery store and bought one from their bakery to stick on a cake plate and just smile when people commented on my masterpiece. Not that. Instead, one where we bought all the right ingredients from the store and used them from a from scratch recipe. After going to the store, we'd set out all the ingredients, the flour, the butter, the sugar, the vanilla, the eggs, the baking powder, and a pinch of salt. But then maybe we felt too tired to mix it all together and make the cake. Instead, we thought we could just enjoy the cake one ingredient at a time. The thing is that sometimes we don't like some of the individual ingredients, so we'd rather leave them out. The flour is too dry. Leave it out. The sugar, butter, and vanilla are all good. Leave them in. The eggs are just gross when raw. Definitely leave those out. And then our cake would never be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. We are so quick to judge the quality of our lives and the reliability of God based on individual events rather than the eventual good God is working on putting together. We must know that just like the master baker has reasons to allow the flour and the eggs in right measure into his recipe, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, will do the same with the dry times and the hard times. And yes, we may have to go through some chaos in the mixing and some heat in the baking, but soon we will rise and live lives that are a sweet offering of hope grace, peace, and comfort to others. That's how we can consider it pure joy today. There's purpose in the pain and joy in the making of a life with Jesus. James goes on to show us what we can set our eyes on as we persevere in this joy. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James chapter one, verse 12. Oh, can you imagine? being deemed worthy to receive a crown of life. Remember how they placed a crown of thorns on Jesus? What a picture of how our sorrows feel today. So much like a crown of thorns. But that awful crown is a foreshadowing of how eternity will change everything. It will all be turned upside down in eternity. Grief will turn to joy. Heartbreak to shouts of thanksgiving. Crowns of thorns to crowns of gold fit for a king. I did a little research on this crown of life. This crown will be given to those called into special service to the king because of their dedication to him. Their hearts may have been broken during their earthly lives, but their spirits never were. They trusted Jesus and loved Jesus and cared for people all the way through. But instead of wallowing in pity, they just kept letting Jesus turn their dust into pottery, beautiful and strong and useful for noble purposes. And then, in keeping with their hearts being completely in love with Jesus, the minute they enter eternity— and receive their crowns, many Bible scholars believe they will immediately lay them at the feet of Jesus, so thankful to have a gift to give the King. Such a joy. Even after giving up their actual crowns, these people will continue to carry this honor bestowed upon them. They will be designated as those Jesus recognizes as His closest friends. I could cry thinking about it. I want to live every minute of every day considering the joy of right now and the joy of that day. And so, before we part, I'd pull out my journal and read you one more thing. It's a dialogue between God and Jesus that just spilled from my pen to my journal one day. It's not prophecy, nor am I trying to proclaim divine words that aren't mine to give. But when this allegory came to me, it settled into my soul and felt right for both you and me. I call it upside down, and with a nod in your direction, I dedicate this to you. The son turned his head and quizzically said, Hmm, father... Those are really strange words to assign to this life. Can we pick some other words? I have some fantastic suggestions for this one. She's optimistic and strong. She's caring and compassionate. She's good and generous. And she's so very aware of others. She's a deep thinker and a deep feeler all in one. She's so very rare, Father. Yes, she's rare. I know. And that's why she must be upside down. Father, as she gets older, I don't think she will like that you gave her these words. I think she will question why did you do this to me? The father replied, she most certainly will question me. Her favorite question of all will be why, and it will be serving her well. From the incessant wrestling, she will come to learn something most people never learn. She will see I didn't do these things to her. I did them for her. Though it broke my heart to give her the opposite of what she wanted, she will watch me eventually turn all the bad into good. I will turn it all upside down And in doing so, she will live right side up. She will be a beacon of light in extreme darkness. She will be a voice of hope when others feel all is lost. As she learns to live this upside down way, she will discover there are some problems that cannot be solved, though her brain will tirelessly try. But in the end, she will release that, all the trying, all the wrestling to tie things up tidily, and she will finally embrace her most glorious quality of all, her messiness. This is the most upside-down part of the whole story. What makes her most delightful are the parts of her that are the most messy, untidy, unpolished, uneducated, untouched by perfection, untarnished by performance. She will effortlessly show others a way to find me and draw their hearts into the reality that I am a good God, and most importantly, that I am good at being God. No human should have to carry the weight of being their own God, but so many do. As she seeks me in her mess. She will show others how to find freedom from that weight. She will be a force to be reckoned with in her great battle of good versus evil. Her gentleness will be her strength. Her love will be the fiercest weapon. Her balance will be the beauty of her soul, and her wrestling with the answers to why that never come will be her humility. She'll be a learner and a lover of truth. She will crave certainty, but people are unpredictable, and circumstances will often cause her confusion. So she'll take her uncertainties and bury them in the rich soil of my word. These will be some of our closest times together, she and I. When she learns something while confused, she'll remember it forever. Truth will shape her in the best of ways and lead her heart to want to give the hope she's found to others. So it's through her uncertainties that she'll find her most certain purpose in the world. She will be a curator of curiosity, an image bearer of imagination, a tender truth teller, a bold gospel bringer, the wonderful part of why. Those are the things she'll discover as she journeys through life, dancing and falling, and getting back up again. But son, there is something you must tell her yourself right now today. Dear daughter of mine, when the world tries to beat that why question out of you, offer it back to the heart of every wide-eyed inner child and whisper, Yes, yes, ask away. Because to kill that question is to kill the passion-filled purpose that will give you an answer. You'll never know why that person did what they did, or why the seemingly perfect circumstances shifted and corrupted the way that they did, why the destruction and devastation marched into your life. No, you'll never know those answers. But trust me, it wouldn't make anything better even if you did have those answers. It just wouldn't. I've not kept these answers from you as a cruel exercise of my power. I've kept those answers because only I can bear the weight of them. You live in a broken world where broken things happen. In a sin-soaked world, horrible things happen. They just do. And you will hurt deeply because of these things. You, dear girl, will also watch others hurt. You will hear human answers that try to tie bows around the big blows of life. These sound good in a sermon, but never hold up in real life. And that's when you will see what a gift it is that you've been entrusted with enough hurt to keep you humane. You'll offer the only real answer available. The Lord helped me survive, and he'll help you too. I'll hold your hand while you find your way to him. You won't know why this or that are happening, but there is a part of the why you will come to know. Look around, and you will see the part of the why I do want you to know. You'll find in the eyes of every human you brush up against, or bump into, or barrel over, or dare to embrace. In their eyes will be a secret sorrow, a deep wound, a scared child, You were made to connect with that person, really connect. But you'll never ever connect with all your perfections and performance. All that's slick and shiny about you repels them, or scares them, or makes them shrink back. But your tears? Oh, they were liquid magnets drawing others in. They are a river of reality, a healing for hurts, a bonding for brokenness. You see, it's through your tears that people are united. It's what makes you a safe person to others when you simply whisper, Me too. Me too. You won't have to bring them answers. Just bring them your peaceful presence. And right then and there, your heart will feel like it could just about explode with joy that you have imperfections. They'll invite you to stay when they realize you haven't skipped through life untouched by failures and faults and being made to feel fragile by others. Perfection intimidates. Compassion inspires. And in that, you will finally find the why. Why did this happen? Because there's someone else in the world who would drown in their own tears if not for seeing yours. And when you make one other human simply see they aren't alone, you make the world a better place. Tell her I gave her the words upside down because she'll give the world permission once again to see the wonderful in the why. Her why's have made her wise. Upside down are the perfect words for a girl who will eventually land right side up, messy and marvelous, and so very alive. That's you, my friend that's me. That's the remaking of Dust. Wow. As Lisa mentioned, the end of the excerpt I just read comes from an allegorical dialogue she wrote between God the Father and Jesus the Son. Let us all take a moment to imagine these words being true of us. I would encourage you to replay this section and choose at least one of the sentences you heard and consider why that one is so meaningful to you personally. Just so you don't think I let myself off the hook and haven't done what I'm asking you to do, Let me give you an example I previously wrote down in my study guide. So she'll take her uncertainties and bury them in the rich soil of my word. These will be some of our closest times together, she and I. When she learns something while confused, she'll remember it forever. Truth will shape her in the best of ways and lead her heart to want to give the hope she's found to others. So it's through her uncertainties she'll find her most certain purpose in the world. Friends, these are the sentences that I chose as just a few of the many that spoke to me in the upside-down reading. Personally, it is so meaningful to me because in some of the hardest times I have faced in the last few years, I have repeatedly had the thought that it was and continues to be God's word keeping me alive, helping me to endure. And on the other side of those heart-wrenching seasons, I have found renewed passion to share the hope I have found in God's word with others. In truth, these sentences contain insight into my heart for ministering to others and also in sharing truths I find in God's word. Open Our Bibles Together podcast is just one more way God is using that passion and purpose he has placed on my life. It is an absolute certainty that God will use our heartaches for good and for his glory. 100% true. Amazing. Just amazing, right? Oh, how I hope you will take time to consider the upside-down excerpt in relation to your own life. Right here. Right now. Moving on, She Read Truth just happened to be working through a three-week study on the book of Psalms called Amen and Amen during my prep time for this bonus episode. I say just happened to because this study became one more thread for me to pull. Here's why. As I was wrapping up my studies for the end of the book of Job, I came across multiple resources that recommended spending time and study in the book of Psalms and that that would be a valuable follow-up to Job's story. I kid you not, friends, that while listening to She Reads Truth Amen and Amen, Week 2 podcast episode with Catherine Wolfe, the podcast hosts Rachel and Amanda started the conversation by stating that they think it is safe to say that Catherine is most definitely a Job of our time, one who lives in hope and praise of our God in the midst of all the things in her life. Of course, I listened pretty closely after hearing that comparison to Job. Her story is so incredibly touching. Early in the episode, she speaks of the surgery she underwent after her brainstem stroke in 2008. Catherine said, The reason I am this impaired state is because the wise and careful surgeon made the decision to wound me very greatly in order for me to live. Isn't that a fascinating biblical truth? That in all of our stories, could the wise and careful capital S surgeon have to make sacrifices in order for there to be flourishing in our stories? I believe that if you have a pulse, then you have a purpose. She goes on to say, What my husband Jay and I have been able to do is just recognize how the hard things in life and the very best things in life are actually able to coexist. Catherine shares, I love this idea that God made you to do the hard things in the good story he's writing within your life. She goes on to say that in living this second chance life, she probably clings more to the book of Psalms than she ever had before. She said, I definitely resonate deeply with the lament and distress and turmoil that the psalmist writers are reconciling and trying to honor God in the hard things. I think the book of Psalms and the other wisdom literature is where we go if we were wanting to go in deeper into this tension of hope and praise, along with the deep, deep hurts of life. There is sadness lumped into a lot of joy. Phew, friends, that's already a lot to process, and we are only just beginning to take our deeper dive. Let me just list out a few more pieces of the conversation I recognize were threads to pull as I was aware of them from other resources I had already been exposed to. Here's a few from this one podcast episode alone that we are going to explore further in our time together today. Hang with me here for a minute. Number one, Catherine references the book of Job when she mentions how it says God wounds and he heals. Number two, suffering allowed me to see the upside-down kingdom of God more clearly. Number three, the Psalms is our place to come to know that we are not alone, and the same could be said for the book of Job. Number four, we are living within a good hard life and it's possible to learn to embrace the joy and the pain all at once. And number five, we need to redefine our definition of good as Christians. Okay, I know this list might all seem unrelated right now, but I believe God is trying to speak to us here as we recently wrapped up Job's book on suffering, on suffering well. I know I certainly feel like I have so much more to learn in this area of suffering well, merely scratching the surface really. So in light of Catherine Wolfe's conversation on the She Reads Truth podcast, what I want us to come away with is the truth that the Psalms are definitely where we go from here if we want to continue to dig into the themes we have been looking into in the book of Job over the last few months. However, in our chronological reading of the books of the Bible, it'll be quite a while before we actually get to the book of Psalms in our OOBT studies together. So I just wanted to take a moment to give you a bit of detail about Psalms to help you as you spend some time reading in there. For that information, let's take a closer look at She Reads Truth online resources for the Amen and Amen Study. Please, please, please take a deeper dive into this study and the podcast episodes linked in the show notes for yourself, as I am certain we will quickly run out of time in today's episode with so many additional threads I hope to pull and unpack a bit more for us. However, I did learn quite a bit of information I had not heard before, as they shared a framework of how Psalms is arranged in five books. That take us on a deeper dive into the wide range of emotion represented in those 150 chapters. Here is a teaser of the information found in the study to at least give us enough overview for best practices in digging into the book of Psalms. The beginning sections of the Amen and Amen study read. The book of Psalms is structured as five smaller units, each made up of individual songs and poems. Many of us have never read the Psalms as an entire collection. More often, we read favorite psalms or look at them in literary groups. There's certainly nothing wrong with this approach, but in doing so exclusively, we can miss the artistry of the whole collection. In this Amen and Amen reading plan, we'll look at psalms from each of the five books to build a framework for understanding the psalms as a whole. We'll see how this book tells a redemption story, one of a mighty, powerful God who draws near to broken humanity, who promised an eternal King Jesus, and who remains the same, from generation to generation. Each psalm also reminds us that God meets us in whatever state we're in, in our loneliness, sorrow, and celebration. Just in case you don't have a moment to click through the links to the Amen and Amen study that I placed in the show notes, let me just read the breakdown of the overall themes in the five books found within the whole book of Psalms. One, the personal nature of the Psalms in Book One demonstrates that all those who place their hope and trust in the Lord Aligning their lives with his kingdom, can rest in his deliverance. Two, the collection of Psalms in Book Two express lament and distress about present circumstances and conditions while looking to the faithfulness of God. Three, while Book Three contains threads of hope, it is often labeled as the dark book of the Psalter because of its focus on lament. Four, Book Four is a response to the despair in Book Three, with only two Psalms attributed to David. This section anchors the worshipers outside the reign of David, all the way back to creation, the exodus, and the early history of the nation of Israel. Five, book five is an invitation to exuberant praise. It is worship in light of God's covenant love, his word, and the reminder that his promise of David's never-ending throne will be fulfilled by the Messiah. Wow, I don't know about you, my friends, but I found this breakdown very helpful. One I will hold to to help me when I'm taking my own very emotions to the book of Psalms in search of the words to say and as a way to realign my feelings and thoughts with the truths found in God's word. So good. In continuing with She Reads Truth Amen and Amen study, it reads, our stories, just like the people who wrote each Psalm, are not the whole story, but they are part of God's grand redemption. Through these Holy Spirit-inspired words, we're reminded that there is hope even when everything seems lost. Life when death and decay seem to press in, and community and purpose when all we see is loneliness and fear. Even though I ache to personally connect with God through the ups and downs, I can struggle to know what to say or how to say it. In today's passages, we witness David's full sweep of emotion and experience. From highs of triumphal joy to lows of desperate doubt, through these psalms we are given a model and an invitation to express the same. Psalm 18 begins with praise. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2. David's heart overflowed with joy, and he wasn't bashful about gushing over the goodness of God. Psalm 18 resounds with words of gratefulness and confidence. It's a celebration spoken aloud. The tone shifts in Psalm 22 as celebration turns to desperation. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Psalm 22, verse 1. David poured out anguish and dared to ask God why he would allow deep suffering. He turned to the Lord with honest questions and doubts, even in pain. In this, we find seeds of hope and trust that God was there, even in the dark. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Verse 19. Jesus, in history's deadliest, darkest descent, repeated the words from Psalm 22 on the cross. He too spoke to his Father through pain, trusting that he would resurrect hope from hopelessness, life from death. We're no strangers to times of darkness and confusion either, but God also meets us in the dark as he invites us to seek him and honestly cry out. David's tone shifts again in Psalm 23 as he rested in God's tender care. Even in the darkest valley, God was with him and protected him. Psalm 23, verse 4. The mood becomes softer, more settled, as he recalls God's personal attention and provisions. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. Verse 1. These words express shalom, the safety, wholeness, and flourishing we experience in intimacy with God. God makes space for us to unload our hearts Him honestly and share with others. Head up, eyes open. We don't have to silently clench our fists to move through our days, and we're not on this ride alone. Remember back to our discussion of Catherine Wolfe's guest appearance on She Reads Truth, A Amen and Amen podcast? Let's revisit in a bit more depth some of the things she mentioned from both her and her husband Jay's perspectives as found in their Suffer Strong book. Side note, I will be reading multiple excerpts from this book to address that list I mentioned from the She Reads Truth podcast episode we talked about earlier in today's episode. Before we begin with these excerpts, though, I'm just going to go ahead and say right now that I firmly believe this book should be read if we want to go deeper in our studies in the book of Job. As you will soon hear, it is jam-packed with so much solid truth from those who have suffered much but learned how to suffer well, to suffer strong in the middle of it all. With that said, let's begin. In chapter 10, titled Glorious Scars, Redefining Healing, Jay says, In the wee hours of the morning just a few days after Catherine's stroke, I sat in disbelief by her ICU bed. It was dark save for her blinking lights on the machine cityscape that surrounded her. It was quiet save for the sickening whoosh of the ventilator and the rise and fall of her chest with each artificial breath. I was unable to think or sleep, haunted by the memory for calling my name for the last time before the ambulance took her away. Anguished by the horrifying acts done to her body and brain, during the 16-hour-long surgery, and shocked by the nightmarish sight in front of me. Catherine, my love, the mother of my child, was propped up, swollen and unrecognizable, with bloodied hair, bruised face, and half-shaved bandaged head. She had always embodied confidence, strength, and beauty. Now I could hardly look at her without wanting to sob uncontrollably. I sensed deeply that God hadn't spared her life only to leave her to die in this place, but having to endure the present circumstances felt nearly as terrible as death. I began reading through the book of Job because where else do you turn in the Bible when you want to know you're not the only one in the world who's gone through some horrible thing? The theme of God's overwhelming care for his people, hand in hand with his overwhelming otherness from us, came through strongly. Of course, this was both comforting and alarming. Is this the God I always thought I knew? In the midst of Job's suffering, his friends tried to comfort him, And though their diatribes were not exactly what I'd recommend saying to anyone in the midst of acute suffering—remember, less words are the best words—a phrase I'd never noticed before was sprang from the page in Job 5, verse 18. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. This concept was hard for me to process. It seemed so contrary to how I thought God worked. Only a broken world wounds. Only evil injures. Yet here I sat in front of a woman who'd been wounded and injured in order that she might be healed. When I looked at the neurosurgeon, Dr. Gonzalez, I didn't think of him as her wounder. Rather, I saw him as her lifesaver, her healer. He'd intentionally sacrificed and even destroyed parts of her brain and body for the greater purpose of sparing her life. Wounding Catherine was not the doctor's end goal, but wounding was necessary if he hoped to save her. And so it is with God, except he knows the outcome. He never wounds us more deeply than he can heal us. Of course, we couldn't see that then. It would take years to gain a perspective that gave meaning to our horrendous experience. And pondering the ministry of Jesus didn't exactly make our understanding of healing any clearer. Jesus healed the sick, disabled, demon-possessed, and even dead. Sometimes it was because of the faith of the person. Other times he was simply moved by compassion for them without regard to their faith. Sometimes it was like he set up a booth and healed droves of people in one sitting, other times he healed just one person, leaving all the others not healed, and then slipped out the back. Is there any rhyme or reason to this? Are there any lessons to be learned or a formula to memorize? At the end of the day, there seems to be a pattern. Healing is in God's control, but we are invited into the process. It's human nature to want a cause-and-effect explanation for suffering. We want to know what to do to prevent it from happening to us. We want to know which sins are okay and which will result in us being struck blind or losing the house or a child. We want to know how to get God's attention when we're suffering. Please, God, just tell me how you want me to pray. Just tell me the right words. I'll say them so many times. Shout them from the rooftops even, if you'll just let me off the hook, if you'll just restore what I've lost. Prayers and confession are good, but if we want to use them to try to control outcomes— then we're missing the point that God is God, and we are not. John 5 tells the story of Jesus encountering a man who had suffered for decades, living in a body that didn't work, and in a society that didn't see him as a human being. Do you want to be healed, Jesus asked. Surely a resounding yes would be expected. Yet the man didn't answer with a straightforward duh. Rather, he explained why he hadn't been healed, how others had taken all the healing that could have been his, how no one would help him. Jesus already knew the man's history. He already knew the man's heart. Jesus didn't ask him if he believed. Jesus didn't commend his faith. Jesus simply had compassion on him and gave him healing that had been out of reach for his whole life. Then he gave him a new identity. To paraphrase, you've been healed in body and soul. You were a victim. You were alone. You are imprisoned in your body and in your sin. Now, because of this healing, you are an overcomer and you will never be alone. You are free Now go live differently. But why did Jesus choose to heal this particular man? Did Jesus just feel sorry for him? Was it a start of some grand domino effect that would change the world? I don't know. I do know we're still talking about this story thousands of years later. This man's painful life gives us a picture of how we all long to be healed, yet place obstacles between us and whatever kind of healing God chooses for us. We don't want to be vulnerable to feel the powerlessness of perhaps not getting the outcome. We desire. We've waited too long for the miracle that has never happened, and our hearts can't take any more exposure. We felt alone, and now we're too weary in body and soul to even take one more step forward. And yet, there was grace for this social outcast, and there is grace for us too. Admittedly, even the overcoming of such obstacles and acceptance of Jesus' invitation to healing will lead us into more mystery than clarity here and now. But we'll never be at peace until we're at peace with this. This perspective on our smallness in the grander scheme of things can make us feel insignificant and unseen, or it can make us feel worthy and extravagantly loved, chosen out of a crowd of hurts and given a chance to get up and walk and live again. Another moment in the Gospel of John gives us a clue about the heart of God in the midst of our pain. Jesus saw a man who had been blind his whole life. He had no doubt been living in physical and relational and spiritual darkness. He was known by his community, but left to beg on the street. Jesus saw him when no one else did. The disciples, kind of like medical students barreling around some poor patient's hospital room, began analyzing the situation. Hmm, whose fault is this? So sad. Do you think he sinned and got punished for it by being struck blind? Bless his heart. Wait, maybe it was his parents' sin. Sins of the father are the worst. Jesus may well have given his friends the stink eye, communicating clearly that although the man was blind, he wasn't deaf. Jesus saw a man who had never even seen himself, and in that moment, Jesus spoke words that have healed broken hearts for thousands of years, that have given purpose to every manner of pain. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. John chapter 9 verse 3. Friends, is it possible that God is doing the same good hard work in us, carefully wounding and faithfully healing, intentionally injuring and compassionately binding up. While the hurting may seem long and the healing slow, we can be sure of this. He never wounds us more deeply than he can heal us. May we trace the lines of our glorious scars and recall the healer's faithfulness in our personal overcoming, as well as Jesus' sacrifice in the ultimate overcoming of death and darkness. May we look upon our scars and see his scars, life-giving, heart-healing badges of honor. I would encourage all of us to consider these questions as we process what we just read. Number one, what's your most impressive scar and how did you get it? Number two, have you ever experienced the full arc of being wounded in order to be healed? And number three, how do you interpret the idea that a good God can cause harm? Now moving on to a chapter titled Waiting Well, Redefining Hope. Jay says, knowing that much of life is out of our control should actually be a call to action. We may be powerless in some ways, but we're not helpless. We can still pursue our dreams without clasping them to our chests, and bucket lists can be a helpful way to be intentional with our lives before we kick the bucket. However, we can get pretty mixed up on this bucket list thing. After the stroke, we threw a bucket list and lots of other future plans out the window. We figured the real bucket list was just being here and not actually kicking the bucket yet, as life moved forward, we became a little more confident that there were some dreams we did want to keep, and we wanted to pat ourselves on the back for things we never thought to put on the list that we can now check off. We traced our figure down to the line item for suffering. Check. Woohoo! Now we can move on to the skydiving and tropical vacation. Or maybe just the tropical vacation. And just think how much more we'd appreciate it now because of all the hard stuff we'd made it through. It's a deal, God. Thank you. I'm not sure God rolled his eyes at us. It might be beneath him. But he also might have. Sometimes our attempts to make deals with God are explicit and well thought out on our end. But more often, they're subtle and sometimes even unconscious. We bargain God, since we've already been through so much, it stands to reason that we shouldn't have to go through more hard stuff. You know, the balancing rules of the universe thing. Or God, I get how you have used my pain. I'm processing that still. And you know, I think I'm good. I don't need any more helpful experiences like this in my future, but thanks. Or the classic, I promise to be so good from here on out, I'll dedicate my life to you. I'll go to church and not get on Instagram so much and actually put money in the offering plate. You have my word. Or we get a little feisty. God, no more. Done and done. This isn't fair. This isn't the life you promised. I already checked suffering off the bucket list too. We effectively unroll our contract and shove it in God's face. But soon enough, we realize that a contract requires two signatures, and this one only has ours on it. I think if there was an eye roll from God before, now there's more of a loving sigh. God, who is the most brilliant negotiator, the fairest judge, and the most tireless advocate, is not ruffled by our demands. Rather, he looks us straight in the face, eye to eye, Firm hands on our shoulders, soft smile reverberating into our souls and asks us a question. What is it you want from me? We might be taken aback by the question. We might have a harsh and definitive answer, a rebuttal, hard facts, persuasion. Instead, we realize we're standing at a crossroads with him. What is it you want from me? Do you want me to give you the gifts and the life you think you're entitled to? Or do you want to know the giver of every good and perfect gift? Do you just want to stop hurting? Or do you want to know the healer of the world? I'm offering you everything. I'm offering you me. Is God what we want? To know him and make him known? To love him and be loved by him? Or do we think he's just really good at giving us all the things we don't have? That is a question we must grapple with every day as we wake up to the unknown. In the words of Cory Ten Boom, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. But it's only fair to acknowledge that God can often seem far more unknowable than an unknown future. And of course, this makes it harder to want him over wanting things we can wrap our heads around more easily. It's easier to want our bodies to work right or the relationship to stay strong or the pain to go away than it is to say, but your will be done, whatever that will may be. And yet knowing God and wanting him are inextricably linked. When we choose to open our hearts and receive him on his terms, We really begin to know Him. And when we begin to know Him, we more readily open our hearts to receive more of Him. This cycle of building trust becomes a holy unraveling of ourselves and a stunning revelation of Him. There is simply no shortcut to knowing God. It's not a simple one, two, three steps. Rather, it's a journey of asking, seeking, and knocking, and then finding. Then doing it all over again in different ways and in different seasons. It's about finding all of God's spectacular attributes in Jesus the image of the invisible God, Colossians chapter one, verse 15. It's about finding God's grandeur in the natural world and universe. It's about finding God's heartbreak and love for us and other human beings. It's about finding God himself as we talk to him and listen for him in prayer and meditation. It's about asking his Holy Spirit to connect all the pieces until we have a picture of his awe-inspiring magnificence. Even then, we may not always like or fully understand what we find because in the hard search for God, We find out hard things about ourselves. When Job lamented his horrifying plight and cried out to God, God made no apologies for the reality that he is God and Job was not. In fact, he kind of went for it in a hammering home, the point for several chapters. He reminded Job that though he loved Job with an everlasting love, Job was not his equal, not even close. They weren't even in the same universe or same dimension. Yet there was no bargain. There was no partnership. And yet... God still wanted Job. When Job finally got this, he saw who he was dealing with. Job didn't have any more words, he just had awe. Talk about a new perspective. Job had heard of God, but now he had seen him. And this happens for any of us who are willing to offer ourselves up to God in this vulnerable posture. It happened for Corrie Ten Boom in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. And she found a way to trust God in the midst of huge losses and huge fears. It has happened for countless sinners and saints over the course of human history. It has happened for us. In the end, Job received restoration, even an increase, of much of what had been lost. It's tempting to think that if we just pray the prayer, if we just acknowledge God like Job did, then God will give us back what we don't have, and he may even double our finances. But when we read more closely, we see that God gave Job more children, but didn't bring back the ones he'd lost. He restored his fortunes, but he didn't return what almost anyone would consider to be his greatest treasure. Did Job not pray quite right? Did he lack faith? Was he being punished? Didn't he and God have a deal? But then we realize that there's no shortcut. There's no way to fully wrap our heads around God. He is good, but can we fathom what the depth of goodness in him really means? He is holy. He is other. He is God. We are not. And that's actually a very, very good thing. There is no quota on suffering. No matter the number of hard days you have behind you, no one is guaranteed an exemption from even harder days ahead. Suffering of any sort infuses not only the present with pain, but it also reaches forward and casts the future as a dangerous and dreadful place. We learn that if a bad thing has happened, then it can happen again, maybe worse. Fortunately, that thought can be inverted. If a good thing has happened, then it can happen again, maybe better. After enduring countless major and minor stints of suffering since Catherine's stroke, we have conditioned ourselves to logically identify the opportunity for hope rather than hopelessness. Our lives have been full of good things, which means our future is full of good things if we are willing to define and identify them rightly. We practice preaching the truest story to our own souls. God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. He is working every good and bad, global and personal, Complex and simple plotline together for us and for you and for the human race. The story behind us is complex, good and hard. The promised story ahead ends with redemption. We have the choice of hope to live in the present reality of a future promise of resurrection. Now, for a few more questions we should all consider. Number one, what has past suffering taught you to expect from the future? What has past goodness taught you to expect from the future? Number two, What would be the worst thing that could happen next in your story? What would be the best thing? Number three, practically, how can you live out the future promise of resurrection in your daily life? Continuing on, in the path before us, redefining calling, Catherine says, I cried out to God early in my disability. I want to tell people about you I always have, but I don't want to be the miracle girl in the wheelchair doing it. This isn't the life I imagined when I told my dolls, as a child, that I'd never give up hope. But then I met other people in wheelchairs, and their parents or spouses or siblings or kids. None of whom had ever pictured this life for themselves or their families when they were little either. Then it became clearer. These were my people. This was my calling. This chair wasn't an obstacle to my calling, but it was a greater unveiling of my calling. In fact, it had become my seat of honor. As our Pastor Louis Giglio has said, pain is a platform. It's not that no one wanted to hear what I thought about overcoming struggle before my stroke, in my privileged had-it-all-together state. I did have a very attentive doll audience as a child, after all. This isn't to say that one's voice only truly inspires after we've had a massive trauma. Please don't go making up or subjecting yourself to more suffering than will inevitably come without your help. But it is to say that the world needs more true and vulnerable stories of loss and struggle woven through with healing and hope. And as our former pastor, Drew Sams, has said, people of hope get to re-narrate the world. That's because we have a special lens through which we see the world, and thus through which we see suffering. We're charged with telling the story of God in the world to the world. It has become my calling to tell everyone in wheelchairs, physical or invisible ones, that God promises to pour out goodness into their hard lives and broken hearts. He offers freedom, not in spite of their constraints, but in the midst of them, He has plans to heal their suffering with his undying strength. There were so many of the same ideas I had in my heart from the start, but now it wasn't just my words that preached. It was my life. It wasn't just a book I'd read. It was my story too. God had taken my misery and given me a ministry. He had cleaned up my mess and left me with a message. Catherine goes on to share, A decade ago, I wrestled with the deepest despair of my life, wondering why God would have left me on this earth after my stroke. I was broken in body, brain, and spirit, unable to do anything or be anything other than a source of pain for everyone I loved. It seemed that everyone would eventually stop being so sad if I weren't here anymore. God had obviously made a mistake, but over time I was able to hear God's words in my heart. You are not a mistake because I don't make mistakes. There is purpose. Just wait, you'll see. If we have a pulse, we have a purpose. We are not still on earth by accident. We are here today because we've been called by God to this unique place and circumstance, to this moment in time in history. We're here because there's more life for us to experience and more work for us to do and more love for us to give. If we can't fathom why or figure out how it doesn't matter, we don't have to know all those answers before we start living. In fact, those questions can't begin to be answered until we step into this new normal life first. We are all living out some version of a second chance. Some of us are just more aware of it than others. Our second chance life is not the one just out of reach. It's the one right in front of us. It's the one God has been calling to us to all along. Our story begins with first paying attention to God's story. We don't have to fight so hard. We don't have to judge so hard. All we have to do is remember the story of our life with God and tell about it. And as the words come out of our mouths, the mountains of privilege and self-actualization, the valleys of brokenness and despair, rumble to a level ground. In that place, God's glory can be seen by everyone. During these years, we lost so much and yet were filled up with even more. The question became, what are we supposed to do now? We're new people on the other side of this suffering. We've been given a second chance. We've been left with a story that has changed us and other people too. We didn't know where we would be years down the road, but we knew that we'd been called to take what we've been given and give it away. God never calls us from a void, but rather he calls us to give from what he already given us. Paul described this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Praise be to the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. For a God who wastes nothing and withholds no good thing, it's fitting that he created a perpetual circuit of hope and comfort through us as living conduits he gives us what we give away but in the giving away we are quite miraculously but not surprisingly filled back up romans chapter 15 verse 13 proclaims may the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the holy spirit we are filled with hope so that we can be overwhelmed by it and overflow with it we like to call it hoping it forward and this calling continues to be motivating charge to get out of bed every morning into an unknown future, and a life we never saw ourselves living. As nice as it sounds to Hope It Forward, it actually runs counter to the culture and to the visceral callings we hear in the midst of our pain. When we've been through suffering, we think the end goal of us being comforted is so that we can be comfortable. We think we are at the beginning and end of our suffering and our comfort. And we certainly don't like the idea of taking something valuable that we've been given and giving it away. Yet in this process of refining us, God cautions that we'll never triumph over our pain if we keep the comfort all to ourselves. Our suffering is bigger than ourselves, but our healing is bigger than ourselves too. Let us consider these questions together. Number one, do you think all people have specific callings? Why or why not? Number two, did you ever feel certain that you had a specific calling on your life? Do you feel called to do something now? And number three, currently, what are the perceived barriers to fulfilling your calling? Now for the epilogue of the Suffer Strong book, titled, The Good Hard Life. Catherine says, We tucked our kids in bed at the end of the long day. They protested. We protested right back. It was time. We prayed and sang in our usual way, but for some reason that night, I was prompted to offer one last seed to the soil of their nearly sleeping heads and hearts. Maybe it was a response to their time-honored request for God to help them just have a good tomorrow or their subtly communicated fear of the future and not-so-subtle fear of the dark. It seemed another truer word needed to be spoken aloud. As we knelt by their silhouettes, this tearful declaration sprang from my lips with surprising strength and clarity, perhaps because I had been telling it to my own heart all along. James and John, God made you to do the hard things in the good story he's writing for your life. Whether tomorrow is the best or worst or last day of our lives, We pray that God will give us everything we need to live it out to the fullest with strength and courage. This is the good hard life. This is the way of Jesus, the way of glory through sacrifice, flourishing within limitations, and with unstoppable love coursing through the whole thing. It is golden. It will be hard, but we have already been made for the hard. God has equipped us with everything we need for the journey ahead, most of all with Himself. And the story being written, unexpected and painful and long or short as it may be, will still be good because God can't write any other kind of story. Life is never just one note. It's too dynamic for that. And how much more so, God? Don't settle for a whistle when there's a symphony surrounding you. Don't believe the lie that this must be one or the other because you'll be missing out on something vital, the experience of life's true fullness. Good and hard are not mutually exclusive. This side of heaven, they equal halves of a bittersweet whole. They reveal each other. The more the hard carves out tender places in your heart, the more space there will be for the good to fill it in. And the more good fills up in your life, the more overflow there will be onto the hard work ahead. This is the way where new beginnings come out of what looks like an ending. I pray my boys never stop believing that good things will come to their lives, but I also pray for a redefining of just what good means to them in this upside-down kingdom of God. And if the day or their lives don't look anything like they thought, I pray God will empower them with bravery to illuminate the darkness and help them uncover every last bit of treasure to be found there. This message is a message of my life and of every life awakened to its own broken down but miraculous nature. It has taken time and tears along with many teachers and much grace to uncover it and even more of all those things to actually believe it. But now my upended life has revealed my second chance life. The redefining of me has become the refined me, and I truly love my life. I want to cherish it and champion it, even the parts I never could have imagined. And I want to live it well to the very end. May it be so for us all. When we earnestly and honestly examine the life of Jesus, we realize that his ways seem anything but right side up in our current context. He chose surrender, sacrifice, humiliation, risk, forgiveness, and radical love when no one would have blamed him for self-protecting. He was working with a different dictionary than the rest of us. His upside-down life only makes sense in an upside-down kingdom. He warmly invites us to find a home in this topsy-turvy world where hard can be good, where the high notes sound better alongside the low notes, where brokenness is a prelude to repair. One of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves is finally setting down the back-breaking, heartbreaking burden of our own definition of good. In God's reality, those four letters encompass a fathomless death, Of dynamic experiences and meaning. When we choose to embrace the stories we're living and release the stories we wished for, we can know in our deepest places that this good story is being written by a God who can't write any other kind of story. Living the good hard life in the upside down kingdom means we no longer need to numb ourselves to the difficult and the dark. We can awaken to the broken down, miraculous nature of our second chance lives and begin this very day to live them well to the very end. As we wrap up our time in my excerpt reading from the Zephyr Strong book, and as we consider these last questions here, I want to also give you a heads up that I will include the questions that I've asked throughout all of these sections of the book for you to review in the show notes. Once again, a plugged for you to go there. <laughs> okay, here's those questions. Number one, define good in your own words. Then try to define good in God's words, according to what we know from scripture. What are the similarities and differences you found between the two definitions? Two, when was the time that goodness looked different than you expected? And number three, would you remove all the hard parts from your life if given the choice? If so, how would this affect your relationship with God, yourself, and others? Life is good hard. And yes, as Catherine said in the She Reads Truth podcast, she has made up a new word here. Good hard. All one word with no space between. Life is always both. The good and hard are always commingled in our lives and God made us to do the hard things in the midst of the good story he's writing in our lives. Wow, I hope you were seeing along with me that God is speaking to us in so many ways, so many connections. Remember back to our excerpt from the Hard Good book by Lisa Whittle in a previous episode? I think God's trying to tell us something here, my friends. Let's have ears to hear. Good hard, hard good. Let's dig into Lisa's book to see what she has to say about living a hard good life. The Hard Good Book Begins. I have been thinking about this book for almost 1,825 days, ever since my favorite person in the world got sick and died. That's when I started a journey of the hard good. My hard good story had in fact begun long before, but it wasn't until Dad developed a rare brain disorder and slipped away from us with a single breath that my kept it all tucked tightly in their heart was cracked open, and God revealed to me how hard things didn't have to shut me down or make me bitter. Before that, I'm not sure I would say hard things could also be good, or know how that worked exactly. The reason this might matter to you is because your life is probably full of hard things, whether currently, in the future, or in the past, and you aren't over it. But it's more than that. I definitely didn't know how hard things were the very keys to my growth process. That, as I've been praying for years, like, God help me be more humble, less jealous, more open, loving, and kind— God would answer those prayers to the path of difficult circumstances. Perhaps you catch clues quicker than I do, but I didn't realize God was using this type of life as on-the-ground training to transformation. I find it's common to miss what is often right in front of us. Our hard places are teaching us invaluable lessons while we are looking for a way to push them away. I know right now you might feel as though everything is out of control and life is simply handing you cards you cannot deal with. I agree that life does often deal us bad cards. This is the promise of God in John chapter 16, verse 33, that in this world you will have trouble. We certainly know that. But I hope you will come to know this too. Though the world brings trouble, we do still have choice, specifically when it comes to our takeaway from the trouble life brings. God wants you to make much of your life. He has anointed and appointed you for a special purpose. Yes, even knowing about your heart that would come your way but you will determine your level of usability for the kingdom of God and how you respond to it. God also has a great purpose for your life, and that has never changed. It is my belief, based on scripture, His purpose is the same for every believer, which might come as a surprise to you. The reason a lot of us make only slim progress in our life is because we are searching for something that is set, purpose, rather than pursuing our usability, which is up to each of us. And that is where you will find this book helping us to see our hard circumstances, less hard to unbearably hard on a scale, but all humanly difficult for the good that can result from them. But only with God. That is the deal breaker. So here are the last two things I want you to know. Number one, if you truly want what you say you want in life, joy, peace, hope, love, fulfillment, purpose, you will have to stay with God through the uncomfortable process to get there. There's no way around Up to now, you may have thought that the reason you never got anywhere was because life is too hard. But the real reason is because when life gets hard, you keep bailing on where God wants to take you, and you keep having to start over. Number two, if you truly want to be spiritually transformed, you have to redefine good. Right now, you may well be operating under a faulty definition of good. Culture has a loud voice, and it's hard to hear truth over it. What we've heard are all the mantras, you are good, just as you are you create your own good life. i love for those things to be true, but they simply aren't. Just because God loves and accepts us as we are, and just because he has given us many gifts and capabilities, doesn't mean we can swing the pendulum to a self-destructive narrative of self-heroism. The lies about the good life are pretty but covertly exhausting. It also has us thinking that we have done something wrong if we don't have a quote-unquote good life like someone else. Creating a good life takes a lot of hard work, and isn't sustainable long-term. Thankfully, the Bible provides the common sense we need and gives us a different definition of good, centered not on us or our strength or capabilities, but on God. God is good. Therefore, hard things that lead you to God will be good for you. Growth is good. That means that you can't be good without process and progress. And a good life equals a life of kingdom usability, not fame, fortune, or ease. And what may be the most important thing to note from that quotable in Romans chapter 8, all things work together for good, in verse 28, the most missed word in the verse is together, and it's most important. It does not say that all things work out. It says all things work together. This means that there will be missteps, disappointments, losses, and things that fall through along the way. Not everything in this world will work out for us, but the hard things will work together for good for those who love God and desire to be usable for his kingdom. So then what is our role with good if it's all about God? It comes back to that uncomfortable process. It is to stay with God on the journey, which is hard, that he has ordained to transform us, which is good, not to create a journey for ourselves, because we can't anyway. It is a dependent versus a director role. P.S. Expect the world to disagree. So yes, good is the crucial end here, It is the God-defined one found in godly growth, not in self-gratification or glory. The irony is that godly growth will bring the gratification we've been looking for our whole lives, and it is indeed a sweet life. Because unlike a limited good life we might try to make for ourselves by avoiding godly growth through the refinement process, the hard good process is an alternative for pointless pain and exhaustion. If hard is going to be part of my life, and it's proven that it is, I prefer to have produce something. I suspect you agree. I see you worn down by life. I see you brokenhearted. I see you trying your best. I see you sick of this same issue over yourself. I see you wanting to get close to God. I see you notorious bailer. I see you scared and lonely. I see you reaching out for help. Here's the beauty of the hard good. If you feel life has been unfair to you, you can be right. But at the same time, you don't have to concede that life has won. Right now, your first goal may not be for God to use you. You may simply be trying to recover from something or clinging to the hope that better days are ahead. But at some point, you'll need more than just hanging on. You'll want what's left of your life to matter. God, help our hearts to seek your transformative way. Here we are. Here we go. Speaking of the Psalms and the true value in reading them, most especially in the hard good times of our lives, um, see what I did there? Hard good, not just hard. Listen into this message we recently heard out of H20 Church Attica in a Life Church message series called Peace of Mind. This excerpt is a part of the week one message titled The Most Dangerous Myths of Mental Health. This seven week message series has been so timely. I will be sure to provide links in the show notes so you can take a listen as well. Definitely worth your time, my friends. I promise. So back to the week one message. Pastor Craig said, If you're struggling, it doesn't mean you're not a good Christian. It means you're human. And there's a myth, and a lot of time you'll see it around the church as other Christians say that we shouldn't struggle with mental health. And here's another myth, if you're taking notes, and that is a lot of people say, well, God doesn't care about your mental health. He doesn't really care about that. He's too busy. He's got bigger problems. Have you seen what's going on in the world today? Do you think he's concerned and has time to deal with your crazy in-laws or whatever else you're trying to bring to him? He doesn't have time for that. But when you look at Scripture, when you look at the Psalms, you're going to see just how much God cares about every area of your life. I love the Psalms. I'll share just a few of them with you, just to quote them. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. God is our refuge and our strength. He is our ever-present help in a time of trouble. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You will prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies, and your mercy and goodness will follow me all the days of my life. The Lord cares about you. He cares about you. Go to the Psalms to see how much he cares about you, and go to the Psalms to see some people breaking down mentally. There's a lot of psalms you want on your coffee mug, and I'm going to show you one that you don't. Psalm 88 was written by a guy named Haman. In the Bible, Haman is the guy you want in your life. He was well-respected. He was the one that everybody looked up to, and I want to show you just some of the qualities we know about Haman from Scripture. He had very great wisdom, wisdom from the Lord. He was a talented musician. He was one of the worshipers and had incredible musical ability. He had a lot of kids, and the implication is that he was a committed parent, very committed, in his parenting. And he was very, very faithful in his service to the king. This was a man of God. This would have been the deacon at the church. This would have been the guy at work that you go to for advice. This is the guy you want for your father-in-law or your dad. This is a man of God. And I want to show you what he said in Psalm 88, and I'll give you a little spoiler alert. This is one of only two psalms in all the psalms that don't have a positive ending. A lot of times people whine and cry and complain, and then they say, But the Lord is faithful. And this man of God says this, and I wonder how many of you might be able to relate. He says, I'm overwhelmed with trouble, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who've gone down to the pit. I'm like one without any strength left. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. You remember me no more. God, you've forgotten me. I feel like I'm cut off from your care. And then we're going to see something that he gets right. And what I want to tell you is, what he gets right is the very same thing that you get right. Because in the middle of his darkness, in the middle of his despair, he continues to turn to God, just like you're doing today. The very thought that you may be hurting and feel desperate and you've shown up for church today tells you that somewhere buried in there, in the middle of the darkness, you're still turning toward the light. And he did the very same thing right that you're doing at this moment. He says, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. You're the first place I turn. And even though he's crying out to God, he's not finding the peace that he wants. And he says, Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? And the last verse of Psalm 88 is haunting. He says, You've taken from me my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Wow. Darkness is my closest friend. This guy loved God. He's a man of God. And this is in the Bible. This is in the Psalms. And I love that it's there with no positive ending. Because it shows that God is not afraid of our honesty, that He cares that you may love Him and you may question Him, and you may worship Him and you may hurt, and when you hurt, He cares. I don't know about you, friends, but I myself had never noticed that Psalm 88 didn't come back to praise by the end. What a gentle reminder to us that there's space for us to just be hurting and crying out to God, to question. God wants us to come to Him in our hurt with every one of our emotions. Okay, as a bit more frame of reference regarding Psalm 88, the Bible recaptures this perspective about what is happening in this psalm. Psalm 88 was written by a man named Haman, and he was in a dark place. We've all been there, right? He's freely expressing his emotion to God, and what I learned from this psalm, more than anything, is that God can handle our frustrations and questions without being threatened one bit. First, Haman starts out by addressing Yahweh as the God of my salvation, so he's marking out that he does have a relationship with God, and he asks for God to be attentive to his prayer. It sounds like he's either actually close to death or that he feels like he's dying, emotionally. We can't say for sure. In verses 6-8 through eight, and again in verses 16-18, through 18, he names God as a source of his troubles, even though he also makes it clear that God is also the only solution to his troubles. The psalm doesn't get tied up with a bow. It's left open-ended. But as we talked about before, These kinds of psalms show us that our prayers don't have to be formulaic or perfect or polished. We can bring our hearts to the God who built our hearts, knowing that he will meet us in the mess. If you're afraid to pray, don't worry. There's very little chance you could say something worse to God than Haman did. Wow, I've read various psalms over the years and have been comforted by the struggle, but then the return to praising God by the end of those chapters. But this, but Psalm 88, what a relief. What a game-changer to those crushing Job moments of our lives. Psalm 88 seems to serve as a reminder that it's okay to say all that is in our heart and minds to our Father God and not feel the need to force the tying it all up in a pretty bow of praise. How did Pastor Craig say it? And I quote, I love that it's there with no positive ending to Psalm 88 because it shows that God is not afraid of our honesty, that He cares that you may love Him and you may question Him, and you may worship Him, and you may hurt And when you hurt, he cares. Such a valuable concept to grasp, my friends. Come as you are. Bring it all to Jesus. He cares. He cares deeply. Oh, friends, please be sure to check out the link to Life Church's seven-week Peace of Mind series in the show notes. There were multiple things from each message I wanted to share here, but we know we are running out of time. Overtime, probably. Always, right? So as our time with Job is coming to an end, let's end with this thought from Jay and Catherine Wolfe of Hope Heals. Suffering is not the end of the story. Our stories have been so, so hard, but they've also been so, so good. So dear ones, keep persevering in your own good hard story. Tell your good hard story to others. Your story will be someone else's survival guide. Wow. Just wow. Let me say that one more time so we can let these truths sink deep into our hearts and minds. Suffering is not the end of our story. Our stories have been so, so hard, but they've also been so, so good. So dear ones, keep persevering in your own good hard story. Tell your good hard story to others. Your story will be someone else's survival guide. Okay, friends. So as I mentioned at the top of this episode, there is no way that I was able to share all the threads God has been showing me lately as related to our studies in the book of Job. With that said, though, I hope each of you were as blessed as I was to catch a glimpse of some of these extras that provide us with additional framework and perspective. Framework and perspective that I hope we can all pull on when those Job type of suffering moments in our lives appear. I also hope this episode serves a reminder to us all to be leaning in when messages from all different areas of our lives line up with a truth we know from God's word. I don't know why I am still so shocked when I discover threads to pull from multiple directions right in front of me. It is such a kindness and tenderness even that the God who spoke the universe into being would bend low to teach our hearts more of His truth, more of who He is, and just how near to each of us He is, in joy and pain, all the same. He never lets go. He never leaves us. We made it, my Oob tears. We pulled so many threads today. I pray you have also seen the connections. I'm going to encourage all of us, yes, myself included, to save this episode wherever we listen to this podcast. I firmly believe the words God has spoken to us today in this bonus of Open Our Bibles Together are so worth listening to again, over and over, as we come across a hard good in the good hard life we are all living. Before we end our time together, friends, I would like us to take a moment to join together in prayer. Father God. Please help each one of us to recognize that, like Job, we don't need to resent or curse you in our times of suffering. Remind our hearts that we can instead bless the one who took away our sin, gave himself to us, and doesn't give us what we deserve. Thank you, Jesus. So amazing to consider, Father God. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see you as our God who gives and takes away. And may we also see Jesus in those hard moments, the one whose life was taken so that we may be given what we do not deserve. Please also remind our broken, tender hearts that regardless of how much suffering we'll experience in our lifetime, one thing is for sure. A day will come when there will be no more sorrow or pain, no more heartache or tears, no more loss or suffering. Our joy will be made complete, and we will come face to face with our Savior Jesus, who embraced the cross and endured the greatest undeserved suffering completely for us. Help us know deep in our hearts that although it's true that suffering is a part of this broken world, and sometimes a devastating result of sin, you can and will use our sufferings for your greater good. Though our suffering can be extremely painful, it can have purpose when we allow you, God, at the center of it. Is our suffering easy? Absolutely not. Are you with us in the suffering? Absolutely yes. Amazing, just amazing, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Up next, we will be returning to the book of Genesis and pick back up where we left off in the lineage of Noah to Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. I hope you recall that the reason we went to Job and are now continuing in Genesis is because we're reading chronologically. Most biblical historians put Job's timeline after Noah, but sometime before the time of Abraham. So we read Job's story and we'll now return to Genesis, where we'll dive right into Abraham's story. Please remember that one of my personal goals for our time studying together is to begin to see the big picture story or meta-narrative of the Bible as a whole through a chronological reading together. In the meantime, though, why don't you leave a review for this podcast, asking for a friend? (laughs) Truthfully, though, I'd love for you to rate and review OOBT on the platform where you listen. Five-star reviews are my favorite, of course. <laughs> they do encourage me, and they help other incredible people like yourself on the show and decide if they want to listen or not. It sounds simple, but your review actually helps others connect with God through Bible study alongside us. Wouldn't it be great if more people fell in love with their Bible the way we have? I think so, too. So please rate and review today. Plus, um, I'd just love to hear from you, you know? This is M. Faring. And I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.